Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 822. Uh, who are you listening to? We're all listening to someone. Whether it's music or news or a ball game, podcast, parents, co-workers, coaches, teachers, a good book, political commentary. Maybe it's the thoughts in your own head. To some of those voices, we might even characterize our listening as intentional, disciplined. On a regular basis, we arrange our lives to listen. Every Sunday, you listen to a sermon, and you listen to each other, sing. God even commands us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. But are you listening to Jesus? That's what today's passage forces us to ask. Not, are you listening to Jesus among all the others? But are you listening to Jesus above all the others? If you're less familiar with Christianity, perhaps that strikes you as a bit arrogant. Listen to Jesus above all others. Aren't there other good teachers? What makes his word so special? Well, join us today in Matthew's Gospel and hear from a few eyewitnesses. If you take them at their word, I think you too would listen to Jesus above all others. The way Matthew tells the story, Peter has just confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with that confession... Jesus' mission makes a hard turn to the cross. And the disciples are a bit shaken by this. Nevertheless, Jesus explains, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus' suffering and death is inevitable. It's part of God's plan. But you can imagine what the disciples are thinking. Right? What does this mean? The Messiah dying in Jerusalem. What of all the promised glory in Jerusalem? What about the kingdom and justice and a new world? If he's going to suffer, is Jesus really the Christ? Well, six days later, God reveals to a few that Jesus is far greater than they've imagined. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 17. He says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. When the disciples understood that he was speak, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Reading a gospel like Matthew differs from reading just any ancient historiography. Uh, For starters, the Gospels are written for a Christian audience. We also get little detail about Jesus' early life, and nearly half of the material focuses on his last week. Also, more than just reporting the facts, Gospels tend to interpret the facts. Most often, this comes by connecting us to the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills its storyline. But there are also significant ways that the Gospels overlap with ancient historiography. And one of those ways is their commitment to eyewitness testimony. You know, most beneficial was for the historian to have participated in the events themselves. But... Where that wasn't possible, the next best practice was seeking the testimony of those with first-hand knowledge. And having multiple eyewitnesses was even better, as it allowed you to cross-examine their experience. Even more, if others knew the names of those that you wrote about, well, they could double-check your account of their experience. Reading what we just did about Jesus glowing, a couple of dead guys appearing, and a voice from heaven speaking, that may cause some to speculate. But just know that when Matthew's gospel was being circulated, it was in the vein of the best history around. And others would have cross-examined Matthew's testimony with that of Peter and James and John. Their purpose wasn't to deceive, but to tell you exactly what they witnessed. And what they witnessed reveals several things about Jesus' identity and mission. So let's first think about Jesus' identity here. Given their testimony, what do we learn about Jesus' identity? To begin, we learn that Jesus is the coming Son of Man. Jesus is the coming Son of Man. Verse 1 follows the promise 
of Jesus in verse 28 of chapter 16. And it was there that he said, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, last Sunday, I had mentioned two viable takes on that verse. And one was that Jesus anticipates some of the disciples, minus Judas, witnessing His resurrection and subsequent glory. The other was that Jesus anticipates what some, namely Peter, James, and John, would experience here, six days later, in Jesus' transfiguration. And that's the way I'm taking it. And I think that's supported by the way Peter himself explains uh, the event in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, as this prophetic assurance of the Son of Man's coming. But even if you struggle with that reading, we can still drop down to verse 9, if you look at it there, and we can know from Jesus' own words that what they saw was the Son of Man. He says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, some would say that this is just another way of Jesus saying, until I am raised from the dead, and that he means nothing more than I, the man. But later, in chapter 26, verse 64 of Matthew, Jesus uses the same title, and he connects us to the context of Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, with the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Moreover, I want you to notice how the disciples describe Jesus' brightness. It says he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, meaning they couldn't look upon him without going blind. His clothes became white as light. It's the same Jesus, but now he's clothed with glory. Well, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, the Ancient of Days has clothes that are white, white as snow. Psalm 104 speaks of Yahweh wrapping himself in light as with a garment. When John sees the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, it says there that his face shone like the sun. To this point, Peter, James, and John had only seen Jesus in the form of a servant. But here, God reveals that Jesus is far more. 2 Peter 1.17 says that in this disclosure, in this transfiguration, Jesus receives honor and glory from God the Father. So here we're getting this picture of God the Father bestowing majesty upon Jesus. And this is one way he reveals Jesus as his coming king. He wraps Jesus in light as Jesus will be at his glorious return. He wraps Jesus in light, the same light that emanates from God himself. 
Truly, He is the coming Son of Man who will shine with the brightness of His Father's glory. We also learn that Jesus is God's supreme revelation. Is God's supreme revelation. Verse 3 says, There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Why these two guys? It could be that Moses represents the law. Elijah would then represent the prophets. Okay, so Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 is the final chapter of the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's there that God promises to send Elijah as the forerunner. So together, these two figures encapsulate what Matthew repeatedly calls the law and the prophets. And their presence here signifies what their message was always about, ultimately, The law and the prophets always pointed to the glory of Jesus. But we also learn from Luke chapter 9, verse 31, as Luke's recounting the same event. He says that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his exodus. Some of your English translations say departure there. They were talking with Jesus about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Is this one on? Keep getting a lot of feedback. Okay. His exodus. Well, Moses led Israel in the original Exodus. In Malachi chapter 3 and 4, Elijah would come to prepare the way for a new and greater Exodus. He was forerunner to the coming of God Himself to renew the covenant and judge His enemies. So perhaps here we're seeing Moses and Elijah, and they signify more specifically how Jesus brings the new and greater deliverance. Jesus will embody the coming of God himself to save and to judge. And this makes Jesus far greater than a mere prophet. Peter wants to to build tents for all three. Tents may strike us as a pretty odd request. The other gospels tell us he didn't know what to say because he's freaking out. But it sounds like a pretty strange request, but not if you're thinking about Exodus. The glory of God's presence often filled a tent. Where Peter goes wrong is that the glory of God's presence now dwells in Jesus. Peter also goes wrong in wanting to build three tents. As if Jesus is just one of the boys. But God answers from heaven and he settles that immediately. He actually interrupts Peter while he was still talking. God singles out Jesus. Listen to him, God says. Even Moses anticipated this day. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, these words. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. To him you shall listen. He also says that whoever will not listen to my words, that that future prophet shall speak in my name, God himself will require it of him. So consider the weight that that gives to Jesus' words. God will judge the person who refuses to listen to Jesus. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. When God says, listen to Jesus, he's declaring a mediator of a new and greater covenant. Even Moses must now be understood by listening to Jesus. The superior revelation of God's saving plan was there before them in Jesus. He embodied the end-time hopes of Moses and Elijah. But even more, we learn that Jesus is God's beloved Son. Jesus is God's beloved Son. Verse 5. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's not the only time we've heard these words sound from heaven. Uh, The first was at Jesus' baptism. And that event started Jesus' public ministry. And now the same words start the end of Jesus' public ministry as He turns to the cross. But before taking that path, God reveals His special love for Jesus to the disciples. Okay? The, The vision, this whole event, is for the disciples. They need to see that the end is very good, even though things are about to get really hard at the cross. They need the confirmation that He is more than just another prophet. They need the confirmation that Jesus is the one uniquely loved by God. Much of this language is like that of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1, he says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. When Matthew translates, uh, uh, quotes this verse in chapter 12, verse 18, he uses the term beloved. So behold, my servant whom I uphold, my beloved in whom my soul delights. It's from Isaiah 42. The focus of that prophecy is how much God delights in his son as he fulfills his role as servant. No one carries out the Father's will like the Son. No one deserves to shine with God's glory except Jesus. So those are a few things we learn about Jesus' identity. At least by the way Matthew tells the story, He is the Son of Man coming to establish God's reign. He is God's supreme revelation, the Old Testament anticipates the glory of God displayed in Jesus, and He is God's beloved Son who carries out His Father's will unwaveringly. But we also learn some things about Jesus' mission here. And that's the next question I want to pursue. What do we learn about Jesus' mission? 
It's doubtful that Peter, James, and John had connected all these things in the moment of their experience. But the glories they had witnessed were enough to make them tremble, especially the voice from the cloud. This scene here with with a cloud descending on the mountain and a voice coming from the cloud kind of reminds you of what happened at Sinai. And we know how how the people talked about that, that the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. When the disciples heard God's voice, verse 6 says, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. That's a normal occurrence in Scripture. People in their sinful state tremble before the God of glory. Before His majesty, they cannot stand. If anything, such glory should consume them. Instead, what does Jesus do? He comes to these three and he touches them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. What a picture of what God is like. Sinful as we are, holy as he is, He would be right to consume us, and yet He draws near. He comes to us. It's like finding yourself cornered by a majestic lion that you just tried to kill. He leaves you with no escape. His presence leaves you faint. He draws near for what you think is the end of your life only to then find a gentle nudge and a lick on the face. Rise, have no fear. How can that be? Isn't this the glorious Son of Man coming to claim His kingdom? Isn't this the final prophet whose words determine my destiny? And by the way, I just told him, far be it from you, Lord. Isn't this the Christ coming to embody God's reign and devastate His enemies? And yet He says, have no fear. How? I think the answer comes in verses 9 to 13. As they come down the mountain, Jesus commands them to tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That implies the Messiah's death. The disciples then ask Him... Why then do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So if you're going to die, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Malachi 4 is the backdrop here where it says, Behold, I will send uh, send you Elijah the prophet. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So if if that restoration, Jesus, happens before the Messiah comes, why is Jesus talking about the Messiah dying? Jesus explains more. Elijah does come and He will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize Him but did to him whatever they pleased. 
so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. There's a second connection in Matthew's Gospel between Elijah and John the Baptist where chapter 11, Jesus himself actually said, if you're willing to receive it, right? Elijah, I mean, John the Baptist was Elijah who is to come. We're seeing that connection here again. In other words, Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 Elijah does come to restore all things. But even when he came, they killed him. And they will do the the same to the Son of Man. The point being that majestic as Jesus is here, worthy as Jesus is to receive honor and glory from the Father, He chooses the way of humility for our sake. That's what we learn about Jesus' mission. As God's beloved Son, Jesus is glorious. But He sets aside His right to be seen as glorious, and he chooses the path of suffering for our sake. I think that's why he says, have no fear to those who are his own. There's no need to fear because he's heading to the cross to die in their place and to reconcile them to God. He's going to the cross to cleanse their sins, to remove their guilt, to pay their debt, to satisfy God's wrath. Jesus' mission takes him from glory to the humiliation and death of the cross to the resurrection from the dead. And it's through that work that he secures our salvation before returning in glory. You might ask, well, how extensive extensive is his work exactly? It's pretty remarkable that this same word used of Jesus, this is my beloved son, later gets used of believers in Jude chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are called beloved in God. And that's not the only place the New Testament uses this word to refer to those who belong to Jesus. That's how extensive his work is. That's why you need not fear. You, through Christ, have become beloved. So where does that leave us? Like scaling a mountain here, the the transfiguration takes us to the heights of Jesus' glory. God shows Peter, James, and John the true majesty of Jesus, but in seeing his majesty, we're awestruck at Jesus' humility. He comes as a servant before he comes in glory. You see, our God is unlike the God of Islam, who can't be closely involved with creation. He's unlike the God of Docetism, who can only disguise himself as human. He's unlike the God of deism, who doesn't make himself known to us. He's unlike the God of all other religions that requires man to work his way up to God. The true God condescends. He, He comes down. He's high, but he also draws near to us. He identifies with our humanity. He becomes one of us to save us from our desperate predicament. History knows no greater condescension than God 
the Son taking the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. Consider the affront that Jesus' humility is to the world's vision of strength. The world equates strength with domination, but what do we find in Jesus? He is king of the world, and yet he stoops to serve the world. He doesn't assert his power at the expense of others. He uses his power to serve and to save others. The transfiguration also compels us to listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. God commands the disciples, listen to him. And isn't it peculiar that God tells the only ones listening to Jesus to listen to Jesus? Throughout Matthew, the disciples are the ones interested in Jesus' teaching. Jesus told them in chapter 13, Blessed are your ears, disciples, for they hear. Why do you suppose God tells them, listen to Jesus? Isn't that what they've been doing? Well, part of the answer is that even those who hear Jesus don't always give Jesus the attention that he deserves. We're sometimes like children who hear mom and dad's voice, but with no intent to trace out the implications and act on those words. Another part is that the disciples haven't been quick to embrace Jesus' words, and that's especially the case with Jesus' words about the cross. Jesus taught about his death, And Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. That's not very good listening, is it? When Jesus says hard things, even disciples can hesitate to listen. Or maybe he speaks glorious things like the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That was back in 27, chapter 16. But in our suffering and in our pain, in the long delay of this present age, we begin to question whether he's really coming at all. And the transfiguration says, do not doubt my beloved son. You listen to him. His words are true. When you read this glorious vision of Jesus, do you treat Jesus' words with their proper weight? Does his word prevail over all those other voices in your life? When, When the world says one thing and Jesus says another, do you go with Jesus? As a church, it's crucial that we are listening to Jesus in our gatherings To know God, we must listen to Jesus. As elders, it's our primary responsibility to make sure that you're listening to Jesus and not just our own opinions or someone else twisting Jesus' words. If we ever stop giving you the voice of Jesus from the Scriptures, you need to fire us. What about you? Do you listen to Jesus? Of course, he's, he's not bodily present for us to hear. But he has left us his written word. 
by the Spirit, He inspired and preserved for us His teachings in the Apostles' writings. And it's through their writings we also learn how Jesus treated the Old Testament and interpreted it in light of His coming. The Bible is Jesus' word to us. He speaks to us there. So are you reading your Bible to hear Jesus' word? Are you speaking the Bible to one another? Jesus speaks words of teaching. He commands. He exposes and He corrects. He also comforts and encourages He says, take up your cross. And he also says, rise and have no fear. He says, repent. And he says, I am with you always. Listen to all his words. And listen to them always. Listening to Jesus will also mean we tell others about Jesus. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 9. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. We discussed last Sunday why Jesus tends to keep things quiet, at least for a while. Jesus doesn't want this incomplete message about him spreading. He wants people following him for the right reasons, not for things like temporary national interests, but for eternal life. He is the Messiah who chooses the path of humility and suffering first. But here's the deal. We are on this side of the until. Jesus did exactly what he said. He suffered. He died for our sins and then God raised him from the dead on the third day. Jesus appeared to many for about 40 days. Matthew's gospel is now reporting to us the vision. And we ought to tell others as well. If we're listening to Jesus, he says at the end of Matthew's gospel even, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. We should tell others to listen to Jesus. The day has come for us to announce his gospel and tell of his glory to all. We need to tell our Muslim neighbors that Jesus is more than just a prophet. We need to tell our nominal Christian neighbors that Jesus is more than a good example. Jesus is Lord and He is God. He is the Christ and our only Savior, the one uniquely loved by the Father, and He is the one coming again to judge. So this week, who's someone you can talk to about Jesus? Who can you invite into your house? Who can you serve? And in the process, help them listen to Jesus. And then lastly, rest assured in Jesus' return. Rest assured in Jesus' return. I get this from the way Peter writes about the transfiguration in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Turn there with me. I've alluded to it here and there. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. This is on page 1018, if you're using a pew Bible. 
basically, there are some scoffers in, uh, in, around and, and threatening the church. Uh, they're basically saying that the return of Jesus was invented by the church to control people. All right, who are basically saying, yeah, you, you, you like the threat of judgment out there, Christians, because you can make people fear judgment so they obey Christian morality. That's kind of the gist of what's going on in Second Peter. You can actually see it over there in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 4, where they, these scoffers say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter, in response, writes this letter, he, and Peter argues for the reality of Jesus' coming, and he supports it with this, his eyewitness experience at the transfiguration. So verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard his voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter understands the transfiguration to be a preview of Jesus' second coming in glory. And that preview has eyewitness testimony backing it. In other words, Jesus' return isn't a cleverly devised myth to control people. And he knows that because he witnessed the power and glory of Jesus firsthand. It's real. It's going to happen. I saw the trailer already. I know what it'll look like. That's the idea. And then he says this in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, some people take that to mean the scriptures are more certain than the eyewitness testimony. That's not what he's saying. Peter is saying that his eyewitness experience at the transfiguration makes the prophetic word more certain. And because of that further certainty, the prophetic word should become in us like a lamp shining in a dark place. You ever find yourself in a dark place? Wondering if things will really get better? You ever find yourself questioning if this is just all a hoax? Is Jesus really coming back? It's been a while. Will there be a judgment? You need a lamp. And that lamp is the prophetic word which has many reasons why it's true, but one of them is Peter's eyewitness testimony. He was there. 
he saw the preview and he heard God's voice. He says, let the prophetic word be a lamp in darkness until until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the apostles weren't making stuff up to control people. God had worked by the activity of His Spirit, and Peter witnessed the truthfulness of what God had been saying all along by His Spirit. He witnessed the future glory of Jesus on the mountain firsthand. So may all the prophetic words of Jesus' coming throughout all the Scriptures, may they become in us like a light in darkness this coming week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the assurance of Your Word grounded in historical reality. We thank You for Your revelation that You have given to us and the confidence we can have that Jesus is coming back. They saw His glory on the holy mountain. I pray that until He returns, You would keep us enduring. You would keep us confident. You would keep us listening to Jesus above all the other voices. And we ask this in His name. Amen.